0: Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati and today on Prism of the Past, we're going to be talking a bit about prohibition. I couldn't address everything on prohibition related in one episode. So today we're going to focus primarily on alcohol itself that people drank at the time and a few pieces of context here and there. One extremely common misconception is that during the era, the government was poisoning people to get them to stop drinking alcohol. The thing is, this is sort of a half-truth, at least in the way it's been spread on the internet. The government did begin poisoning alcohol and prohibition, but they poisoned alcohol that was never meant for human consumption in the first place, like industrial alcohol and perfumes and laundry detergents through a process called denaturing. So while the memes you may have seen about the government poisoning people aren't wrong, it is a bit more complicated, nuanced, and even darker than you may know. After all, the federal government was aware that people were trying to repurpose this alcohol for consumption, but they continued to poison it anyway, killing thousands. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. So before we get into talking about the poison, let's address the prohibition. How did it begin and why? The Prohibition era started in 1920 when the 18th Amendment went into effect, banning the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors. According to History.com, the origins of Prohibition date all the way back to 100 years earlier in the 1820s and 30s when a wave of religious revivalism swept through the U.S., leading to, quote, increased calls for temperance as well as other perfectionist movements such as the abolitionist movement to end slavery, end quote. Although the prohibition era, as we know it may have officially begun in 1920, it's not as if this suddenly happened all at once. States like Maine actually passed the first state prohibition laws decades earlier in 1846. A number of other states followed suit by the time the Civil War broke out in 1861. Temperance societies were a common fixture by the turn of the century. Alcohol was seen as a destructive force to family life. And by 1893, the Anti-Saloon League was established. According to my sources, the League began as a state organization in Oberlin, Ohio. After a couple of years though, it became a powerful national nonpartisan organization that focused solely on the issue of prohibition. In 1913, in a 20th anniversary convention held in Columbus, Ohio, the League announced its campaign to achieve national prohibition through a constitutional amendment. Allied with other temperance forces, especially the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the League in 1916 oversaw the election of the two thirds majorities necessary in both houses of Congress to initiate what became the 18th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. I know that in today's era, we might wonder how on earth this passed or why people agreed to this, but some sources explain that given the political turbulence of the period, prohibition seemed far less radical by comparison. There was a growing socialist movement and bitter struggles between capitalists and workers around this time in 1914. And that's when one of the worst labor conflicts in American history took place in Ludlow, Colorado. Strikers protesting their work conditions were arrested and in retaliation, the strikers attacked and killed four mine guards. General Chase of the National Guard eventually ordered the town to be destroyed on the morning of April 20th. 26 people, including two women and 11 children were killed when the National Guard rode down from the hills surrounding Ludlow. Though this is merely a summary of the events that happened here, the point of this is to say that prohibition honestly seemed like the least of the United States worries at the time. According to Project Gutenberg, the Socialists met harsh political opposition when they opposed American entry into World War I and tried to interfere with the conscription laws that required all younger men, including Socialists, to register for the draft. On April 7, 1917, the day after Congress declared war on Germany, an emergency convention of the Socialist Party was held in St. Louis. It declared the war a crime against the people of the United States and began holding anti-war rallies. The socialist anti-draft demonstrations drew as many as 20,000. In June, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson signed into law the Espionage Act, which included a clause providing prison sentences for up to 20 years for whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully cause or attempt to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty, or willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment of service of the United States. The socialists, with their talk of draft dodging and war opposition, found themselves the target of federal prosecutors. Scores were convicted and jailed. Compared to those times, the prohibition movement taking off doesn't seem all that crazy. Plus the popular belief in moral law and material progress, trust in science, and support for humanitarian causes allowed prohibition to align themselves with progressivism. Prohibitionists weren't telling people what to do. They were concerned with public health. And that's the narrative that at least was being promoted at the time. The thing is, I don't completely disagree with this one. Your health is your business, absolutely. But some sources have stated that the average consumption of alcohol back when this all began in the 1830s and 40s was three times what it is today. And since wine wasn't a big element in the drinking diet at that time, there were substantially more pure alcohols. So if you think America has a drinking problem today, like the one 2021 Atlantic article states, then just imagine what it was like back then. To illustrate my point, modern Americans consume about two gallons of pure alcohol each year on average. Back then it was seven, and women and children were in genuine danger if the man of the house began drinking and lost his job. There were no social safety nets to support or protect these families. Now, I don't think that makes the outright ban of alcohol the answer, and we'll get into why prohibition failed miserably later, but I found this to be another valuable piece of context, especially when we hear that women played a massive role in prohibition. Not everything is completely black and white after all. Even if we don't agree with prohibition being a solution and we can see the fallout of it now, the context of what was happening then still matters. Yet that's not all. Other sources see the matter entirely differently and say that prohibition was about drink sale, not its consumption. The Philadelphia Inquirer writes, their focus wasn't on drink or the drinker's liberty to imbibe, but on the drink traffic, its sale rather than its consumption. That may seem like splitting hairs, but is actually the source of tremendous confusion. Most histories nowadays omit the keyword traffic. That's like suggesting activists who oppose human trafficking actually oppose humans. Prohibitionists were the enemies of predatory business, not individual choice. Even Bible-toting, hatchet-wielding, temperance titan carry a nation focused not on reforming drunkards, but on smashing saloons and disrupting predatory traffic. Consider this. In 1929, Winston Churchill publicly lambasted American prohibition rooted in the extreme self-assertion which leads an individual to impose his likes and dislikes upon others. Famed prohibitionist William Johnson fired back, any law telling people what to drink and what not to drink would be overwhelmingly defeated in America. I would fight against such a law myself. But when a man engages in the business of selling what causes such a vast amount of trouble, society becomes directly and acutely affected, and it has the right of duty of protecting itself against unsocial acts. Our laws against selling liquor rest upon exactly the same basis as our laws prohibiting the selling of rotten meat, impure milk, or dangerous drugs. I agree that without the word traffic, our view changes. Many see prohibitionists as the morality police and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which promoted progressive suffragism and campaigning for labor laws, a woman's right to vote, and they get malaligned with supporting regressive ideals. The deeper you look into this topic, the more prohibition actually makes sense for this time. After all, it was the anti-saloon league that campaigned for the 18th Amendment, not an anti-alcohol league. As an aside here, the anti-German sentiment during World War I also played a minor role as this mindset discredited a key anti-prohibitionist organization known as the German American Alliance. So there was a number of factors that led up to the prohibition era. It didn't happen overnight, but over a period of about 80 to 90 years. With that basic understanding of how and why this occurred in the first place, let's get into the main meat of today's episode, the denaturing of alcohol. One of the largest myths about prohibition is that it didn't work at all and people drink more than ever. And that's not really true. Alcohol consumption was greatly reduced, but it wasn't eliminated. And this is where bootleggers and speakeasies come in. Some of my sources disagree about if bootleggers actually paid or stole industrial alcohol. Paste Magazine says they paid for it and calls out a Slate article that says they stole and then resold it. Regardless of which may be the case, bootleggers, speakeasies, and those that wanted alcohol were going to get their hands on it somehow. Paste Magazine writes, between 1920 and 1925, American production of legally manufactured industrial alcohol nearly tripled. By 1930, it had doubled once more. Impartial authorities placed the quantity diverted to the bootleg trade at 60 million gallons in a single year. Diluted to 80 proof, that was the equivalent of 150 million gallons or 750 million fifths of drinkable liquor. In order to understand what denaturing actually is, we need to talk about alcohol itself for just a moment. The alcohol we drink is ethanol, the product of fermentation of simple sugars by yeast. However, surrogate alcohols or alcohols that we aren't meant to drink can contain a different kind, methanol, which is highly, highly poisonous to humans, even in small doses. Saying denatured alcohol is a blanket term for describing all of these industrial alcohols that just aren't meant for human consumption. For years, industrial alcohol was denatured and had toxic or unappetizing chemicals in it. You wouldn't want to drink it as is, in other words. But once the government got sick of people breaking the law and still drinking, they took to increasing the denaturing. Now, rather than soaps, methyl crystals or emetics, a substance that causes vomiting, methanol was added to these industrial alcohols instead. They went from needing to be distilled, which was dangerous enough, if not done properly, to downright fatal, as Slate explains. Industrial alcohol is basically grain alcohol with some unpleasant chemicals mixed in to render it undrinkable. The U.S. government started requiring this denaturing process in 1906 for manufacturers who wanted to avoid the taxes levied on potable spirits. The U.S. Treasury Department, charged with overseeing alcohol enforcement, estimated that by the mid-1920s, some 60 million gallons of industrial alcohol were stolen annually to supply the country's drinkers. In response, in 1926, President Calvin Coolidge's government decided to turn to chemistry as an enforcement tool. Some 70 denaturing formulas existed by the 1920s, most simply added poisonous methyl alcohol into the mix. Others used bitter tasting compounds that were less lethal, designed to make the alcohol taste so awful that it became undrinkable. To sell the stolen industrial alcohol, the liquor syndicates employed chemists to renature the products, returning them to a drinkable state. The bootleggers paid their chemists a lot more than the government did, and they excelled at their job. Stolen and redistilled alcohol became the primary source of liquor in the country. So federal officials ordered manufacturers to make their products far more deadly. This turned into a chemist's war where bootlegger chemists tried to take the toxins out and government chemists were trying to find a way to keep them in. Apparently Charles Norris, the chief medical officer in New York City and Alexander Gettler, the chief toxicologist told the government not to do this. Obviously they didn't listen. By mid 1927, the new denaturing formulas included some notable poisons, kerosene and brucine, a plant alkaloid closely related to strychnine, gasoline, benzene, cadmium, iodine, zinc, mercury salts, nicotine, ether, formaldehyde, chloroform, camphor. The treasury department also demanded more methyl alcohol be added up to 10% of total product. It was the last that proved most deadly. The results were immediate. In no time at all, Americans in late 1926 onward were dying from these poisons because, well, everyone knew all along that people desperate for alcohol had turned to these industrial alternatives that had been less safe. Now they proved fatal. One of the first and most reference cases I've seen is that of a man who stumbled into an emergency room at New York City's at Bellevue Hospital on Christmas Eve. He was apparently flushed, gasping with fear and told the nurses that he was terrified of Santa Claus who was right behind him wielding a baseball bat. This case sounded hilarious in its absurdity, at least on a first read-through, but the man was suffering from an alcohol-induced hallucination and shortly afterwards, he died. By dusk the next day, the hospital staff tallied more than 60 people made desperately ill by alcohol and ate dead from it. Again, deaths from alcohol weren't totally uncommon back then as these denatured alcohols were dangerous even before methanol was added to it more so. But this outbreak was different. It was courtesy of the US government. Denaturing had already been common practice, but now in the mid 20s, shit hit the fan. And those aren't my words. Paste Magazine themselves says it. Hospital ERs were routinely stuffed with those suffering from alcohol poisoning and New York City's 30,000 speakeasies were ground zero to the soaring number of cases. 1,200 were sick and 400 died in 1926 and 700 died the following year. Other sources have different numbers. PBS even claims that 4,154 people died from poisoned liquor in 1925, up from 1,064 in 1920. I'm not sure if either numbers are just about methyl alcohol and these are about poisoned alcohol in general, but the point is that hundreds and hundreds died annually from industrial alcohol. So what did the people think of this? What did prohibitionists believe then? And how was this alcohol spreading? Let's take a look. As horrible as this is, Wayne Wheeler, the leader of the anti-saloon league was less than sympathetic to say the least. He said in a statement, quote, the government is under no obligation to furnish the people with alcohol that is drinkable when the constitution prohibits it. The person who drinks this alcohol is a deliberate suicide," end quote. This, it's their own fault if they're dead mindset didn't exactly go over well with the public. Noted wet Senator James Reed of Missouri gave voice to this growing sentiment when he said the following. Only one processing the instincts of a wild beast would desire to kill or make blind the man who takes a drink of liquor even if he purchased it from one violating the prohibition statutes. It became a common refrain of the repeal supporters. If liquor still exists in the market and that liquor is likely to contain literal poisons, then wouldn't it be safer to repeal prohibition and bring back legal federally regulated liquor? That was a tough argument to deny, just one of several that actually led to prohibitions repeal in 1933. Although today we may have seen this as a government conspiracy, this was by no means the case they announced these plans. Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover, both dry politicians, would tell citizens to quit drinking because they intended to make industrial alcohols a lot more poisonous. One source claims that they would even call in reporters to make sure everyone knew. Still, does the public being aware of this really make it okay? It might make things more transparent at the very least, but they argued that the actions the government took were still inexcusable. Not to mention, I'll bet bootleggers likely claimed they were able to renature these products and they were safe to drink in order to sell them, though I can't really confirm that. One columnist, Hayward Brown, even stated that the 18th is the only amendment with a death penalty. Charles Norris, the man we mentioned earlier that had the same mindset said, quote, the United States must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, end quote. It's not definitive just how many people died from poisoned alcohol during the prohibition, but the number went well into the thousands, possibly tens of thousands. Often victims were working class or poor and unable to afford smuggled beer and whiskey from other countries. The wet block of Congress had trouble combating the dry block. In 1927, popular science magazine writer, Dr. Frederick Dramrau wrote that, Uncle Sam has been on trial before the bar of public opinion, charged for no less a crime than willful and premeditated murder," quote. Federal chemists were working to develop a noxious but non-lethal substance that couldn't be removed, but in the meantime, these dangerous chemicals remained. Other alcohols with this wood alcohol mixed in would also be referred to as rot-gut liquor, which poisoned thousands of speakeasy customers. The methyl alcohol, also known as wood alcohol, was the most common and destructive of the bunch. It had no color, no distinctive odor, and it tasted like drinking alcohol, so it was very hard to distinguish. As it breaks down after being ingested, it produces a short-lived inebriation followed by a hangover. According to one source, if lucky, the drinker might experience only a headache, nausea, and severe abdominal pain. If unlucky, the drinker could be blinded this only took three drinks of wood alcohol, paralyzed or killed. As for the bootlegger's reaction to these more dangerous chemicals being added, they did try to get around it and remove these materials, but it didn't always work. My source continues. Bootleggers got around this problem by hiring chemists to redistill industrial liquor, which removed the adulterating chemical. This renatured alcohol wasn't always 100% free of toxins. Bootleggers were only interested in rendering a drinkable product that wasn't immediately fatal. For example, of 480,000 gallons of bootleg liquor seized in New York in 1926, 98% contained poisonous additives. The government poisoning its people is horrific enough, but in many cases, it was the bootleggers that were killing people. This may not have been intentional, but seeing as they were distilling illicit materials and often didn't care about how safe they were for consumption, they're far from faultless too. America had a drinking problem and that wasn't going to vanish overnight. Prohibition had essentially created a wild west of liquor, creating a network of unregulated and unscrupulous bootleggers. According to my source, the federal government had essentially handed the liquor industry into the hands of men who had no reason to care if they poisoned people because they had no brands with reputations they needed to protect, nor could they be reported for violating consumer protection laws. All they cared about was laying hands on any source of alcohol, making it more or less potable, sprinkling on some juniper oil, calling it gin and getting it onto the street. If anything, it was good that bootleggers heavily diluted their liquor, reducing the danger. It's said that in 1930, federal chemists did finally find a noxious but non-lethal substance, alcalotate, a petroleum byproduct. This would make drinkers violently ill without killing them. Considering that prohibition ended in 1933 though, this discovery was, well, a little too late to say the least. Now, before we continue on to talk about some of the exceptions, we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break to thank today's sponsors. We all shop online and we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout, but thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies it to your cart. And here's how it works. Imagine you're shopping online from one of your favorite sites. And when you go to check out, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons and wait a few seconds while Honey does all the work. And Honey has found over 17 million members over $2 billion in savings. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be just straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this channel. I don't even know how many years I've been using honey at this point, but it saved me thousands of dollars. I am absolutely certain of it from the clothes that I buy online to supplies I need for the candle shop, like you name it, honey's just been there. So get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash prism. That's joinhoney.com slash prism. Have you ever pulled into the driveway after a long trip at the grocery store only to realize that you forgot that one key ingredient that's going to make dinner special? Well, now you've got some options. Get the groceries you need or a backup meal from your favorite local restaurants delivered with DoorDash. Get what you want to eat right now and right to your door. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other essential items delivered with DoorDash. Get drinks, snacks, and other household items in under an hour. And are you craving some late night ice cream? Forgot that one key ingredient for dinner, or maybe you just need to stock up for the week. With DoorDash, get everything in one app. With over 300,000 partners, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from some of your favorite national chains like Popeyes, Chipotle, or the Cheesecake Factory. Ordering is easy and your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off up to $10 in value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store. Enter code PRISM. Don't forget, that's code PRISM for 25% off your first order with DoorDash, subject to changes and terms apply. We can dig even deeper though, as there's so many other examples of the illegal and toxic substances spreading throughout the states. Another name for the National Prohibition Act was the Volstead Act, as Andrew Volstead championed the bill and prohibition. As my source explains, section seven of the Volstead Act came with a bit of loopholes of sorts. It states that alcoholic beverages could still be used as a treatment by a doctor who in good faith believes that the use of such liquid as a medicine by such a person is necessary and will afford relief to him from some known ailment. The law even allowed doctors to prescribe this alcohol without physically examining the patient as long as their diagnosis was based upon the best information attainable. Alcohol isn't really a remedy or treatment, ingesting it isn't anyway, but this outdated view was a tradition codified in the law and it was seen as an opportunity for many. Volstead specified that doctors had to obtain a permit from the US Treasury Department to prescribe alcohol, which was manufactured for pharmacies by government approved distilleries. The department issued pads of numbered and watermarked forms to doctors who could then sign prescriptions, allowing patients to sign up for one pint of liquor, usually whiskey, every 10 days. The medicine was costly. The patient had to pay about $3 or $37.50 in 2016 dollars to the doctor for the diagnosis and another $3 to the pharmacist. Volstead specifically prohibited refills, although not separate prescriptions and made druggists write in a date that canceled the prescription immediately after filling it. Doctors typically prescribed one ounce of whiskey to adults, less for children who were also treated with liquor every few hours for maladies with formal names, such as la grippe, the flu, choriza, the common cold, or pharyngitis, sore throat, but also for serious ailments such as high blood pressure, heart disease, depression, tuberculosis, and cancer. With the rationale that liquor promoted digestion and physical vigor, The AMA or American Medical Association said they were opposed to the use of alcohol as a beverage and that the use of it as a therapeutic agent should be discouraged in 1917. Just the year before, whiskey and brandy had been removed from the list of scientifically approved medicines in the pharmacopoeia of the United States of America. But the tradition of seeing alcohol as a treatment hadn't completely faded. Therefore, the laws still allowed its medical use. And it seemed not too long after, the AMA began singing a different tune. The legal exemption led to a windfall for doctors and pharmacists. Even the AMA, just two years after prohibition started, rescinded its objection to the medical value of liquor, endorsing it as a treatment for a laundry list of nearly 30 maladies. For the Walgreens Drug Company of Chicago, the popularity of medicinal alcohol sent profits through the roof. Radio's biggest show. From Hollywood, your friendly Walgreen Drug Stores and Walgreen agency stores present the 1946 edition of Radio's Biggest Show with Bob Hope, Frank Morgan, Ginny Sims, the Andrews Sisters, Dennis Day, Rochester, Vera Bake, Eddie Duchin, Ray Noble and his orchestra, and me, Harry Bonzell. In a full hour of entertainment celebrating the 45th anniversary of America's favorite drugstores, Walgreens. The chain grew from 20 drugstores in 1920 to 525 stores across the country in 1929. But Walgreens to this day insists its rapid growth was due to a combination of effective management, its tasty brand of ice cream made in Chicago, served in its stores' soda fountains, and specifically the invention of the malted milkshake by its employee, Ivar Pop Colson, in 1922. Doctors had essentially become bootleggers themselves, but they weren't alone. The National Prohibition Act also allowed farmers to produce their own wine and for priests, ministers, and rabbis to serve it during religious ceremonies. Priests had to be registered as winery owners and ensure wine didn't distribute outside legal permits. Winemakers couldn't even taste their own wine to test it. One source states that Napa Valley saw a 700% production increase because California had been heavily Roman Catholic at the time. This wasn't because the wine was being consumed at mass services, but priests would have massive parties. Sacramental wines increased by 800,000 gallons in two years without increased church attendance. Priests, just like doctors, became bootleggers in a way. San Francisco apparently even had a priest bootlegging ring led by the archbishop. One source states, illegitimate demand, on the other hand, knew no bounds. It meant that many priests were essentially bootleggers. One of William Faulkner's own personal bootleggers was allegedly a young New Orleans priest who took his customer's orders into the belfry of the St. Louis Cathedral. Whether it was fake doctor's notes, the expansion of Walgreens, or the growing number of priests, prohibition had a lot more unintended consequences than I realized. Now, I know I may have gotten a bit off topic here, but I found these points really fascinating as there are quite a few misconceptions as well as little known facts about prohibition that provide a lot of context for the era. Anyway, let's get back to the poisonous alcohol and one specific case known as Ginger Jake. Even though the image of speakeasies, gangsters and bathtub gin isn't a total lie, for many Americans, this led to a period of joblessness, hard times and austerity. Jamaican ginger, AKA Ginger Jake, a beverage concocted by a pair of men in Boston was responsible for making 100,000 people across the US disabled. Boston Hub Products was their company and ultimately Harry Gross and his brother-in-law and part owner, Max Reisman, were charged with violating the Prohibition Act, but they were only fined $1,000 and given a two-year suspended prison sentence. See, the product they were selling, Jamaican ginger extract, more commonly known as Jake, contained 70 to 80% alcohol. This avoided the prohibition by being sold as medicine like we saw earlier. According to Michigan State University's website, Jamaican ginger extract had been a popular patent medicine throughout the 1800s and early 1900s without ill effects. J. Clegg, a paralytic illness, was caused by the intentional adulteration of triorthylcressyl phosphate. However, TOCP is a slow acting neurotoxin. Weeks after consumption, victims typically notice numbness in the legs, followed by weakness, foot drop, and eventual paralysis. Later, a similar progression often afflicted the arms. Recovery was slow and many patients were left with permanent neurological damage. Over 1930 and 1931, this disease affected tens of thousands of Americans with estimates as high as 100,000. Ginger Jake was surprisingly so common during this era and it would often be mixed with soda or soft drinks to mask the taste. Songs were made about it, such as Ishman Bracey's Jake Liquor Blues and Tommy Johnson's track, Alcohol in the Jake Blues. In many ways, Ginger, Jake, and these other poisonings, tragic as they were, made people all the more willing to mass the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938. So then with all of this, did the prohibition do what it was set out to do? Did America rid itself of its drinking problem? Well, we already know the answer, but now that we have some context as to how the prohibition started and the context of the government poisoning people, let's talk about how it ended. There are many reasons Prohibition eventually fell apart, as well as many other aspects to this era that I simply can't cover in one episode. But as for its ending, let's mention a few good reasons. One is that Wayne Wheeler, a longtime leader of the Anti-Saloon League, died abruptly in 1927, which left a huge vacuum in the league's Washington lobby. William H. Anderson, the New York League superintendent, was convicted in regard to league funds and sentenced to time in prison. Both of these troubles meant the ASL wasn't quite the influential power they'd been before the prohibition began. And as Westerville Library puts it, the league had expected money to continue rolling into its coffers after the 18th amendment was passed. However, the churches and their constituencies viewed the battle as won and did not see the need for the same rate of giving as in the past. People were starting to realize that the long-term consequences of the prohibition outweighed its benefits. Plus the league was now on the defense. Whereas when the prohibition began, they had something to fight for. Not to mention the onset of the great depression turned the tides. Unemployment rates had risen and people were desperate for tax revenue. After all, in 1916, there were about 1300 breweries producing full strength beer in the US and 10 years later, there were none. The prohibition limited these markets without really replacing them without anything else by the sounds of it. It's not as if this boosted other markets very much yet it closed many. The number of distilleries was cut by 85% and the most of the survivors just produced industrial alcohol. According to one article published by the NCBI, legal production of near beer used less than one-tenth the amount of malt, one-twelfth the rice and hops, and one-thirteenth the corn used to make full strength beer before national prohibition. The 318 wineries of 1914 became the 27 of 1925. The number of liquor wholesalers was cut by 96% and the number of legal retailers by 90%. From 1919 to 1929, federal tax revenues from distilled spirits dropped from 365 million to less than 13 million and revenue from fermented liquors from 117 million to virtually nothing. The Coors Brewing Company turned to making near beer, porcelain products, and malted milk. Miller and Anheuser-Busch took a similar route. Most breweries, wineries, and distilleries, however, closed their doors forever. Historically, the federal government has played a key role in creating new industries such as chemicals and aerospace, but very rarely has it acted decisively to shut down an industry. The closing of so many large commercial operations left liquor production, if it were to continue, in the hands of small-scale domestic producers, a dramatic reversal of the normal course of industrialization. These figures showed how legal alcohol sales could boost the economy and the league struggled to argue against their opposition. After all, when you consider how many people died or were severely, even permanently injured from prohibition activities and the rise in criminal activity, it's hardly any wonder people wanted to put this past behind them. So looking at the long-term side effects, did it work? Well, it depends on your definition, but I would say no. It did so much worse than it did good. It killed tens of thousands and stifled a large market in the economy. Although many did obey the prohibition at first, funnily enough, this article argues that prohibition actually created an entire group of newly public drinkers, women. Saloons and their masculine culture, as it's worded here, had once governed the norms of public drinking. In speakeasies, which were semi-public, women felt more free to drink as well as band together to oppose prohibition. So ultimately, was it worth what they did? Probably not, but I guess it made women more okay to feel comfortable about drinking. But in either case, it looks like the rich would get richer and the poor got poisoned. So with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode about the prohibition. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you so much for making it to another Prism of the Past and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.